Pentecost. It is one of the historical realities that makes the church possible as much as Easter and as much as Christmas. The ascension, uh, without which, where would our Lord be? Not ascended to the right hand of the Heavenly Father in power with the clouds? And without Pentecost, where would we be? We would still be in the deadness of our sins, without which the theology of Christmas and Easter would be of no good to us. So would you please turn with me to the Gospel of John? John chapter 3, I'm going to read one of the most familiar stories in all of the Gospels, the story of Nicodemus' engagement with Jesus. John chapter 3, you'll find a Bible in the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along. I'll give you a moment to find John 3. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, about 80% of the way through the Bible. And I'm going to read from the third chapter, beginning at the first verse. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone, everyone that is born of the Spirit. Two words, born again. Do you know what they mean? Some of you have heard them your whole life. Nicodemus heard them for the first time. And with just two words, Jesus blows up every category of thinking that Nicodemus had about religion. Two words, born Again, some of you have known those words your whole life. It's Pentecost Sunday, going to bring us again to the marvelous truths of these two simple words today. Are you born again? What does it mean to you to be born again? What does it look like to be born again? Is it merely a human enterprise or is it something of divine sovereign grace? But in Nicodemus's category of thinking, this was cataclysmic. It brought down every idea, every thought that he would ever have about what Jesus might say about religion. You know those awesome videos where they show a building coming down, like a high-rise, and, and they do it with uh, explosives in such a way where the idea is that it doesn't do any damage to anything around it, and, and people come around and they watch, and I, you know, probably some guy with a big box with a detonator, and he pushes the, you know, the lever down. I hope that's what it looks like, because that's, that's what the cartoons showed me of the guy when I was a kid with a, a maniacal laugh. <laughs> and every floor, every category, of Nicodemus's religious understanding, whether it be the floor of the temple or the floor of the priesthood or the floor of the law or the floor of circumcision or the floor of, of, of you name it, all of the ways in which Nicodemus might have understood the way that Jesus spoke are completely brought down, completely destroyed with two simple words, born again. 
There are also two words that need to blow up every idea that we would have of religion also. If we would truly have a religion that would allow us to see the kingdom of God. Isn't that what it's all about? Do you want to see the kingdom of God? Of course you do. That's what it's, the, the whole enterprise of God at work shepherding his people is that we would enter into his kingdom. But often, we make it into a human enterprise, don't we? Something that's merely within the boundaries and, and our own categories of thinking about religion and our own human enterprise. And what does it look like to be religious? What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to please God? Born again. An experience of divine and supernatural grace that transcends the human enterprise. And again, I'll say this morning, stop and I want you to think about it. One of the most elementary and basic vocabulary of the Christian church. Do you know what it means to be born again? No amount of exhortation, no amount of peer pressure, no ritual can bring about the rebirth. The words born again put it completely outside of the boundaries of what we can make happen, doesn't it? Does that humble you? And if it humbles you, would that be a bad thing? Would you allow God to be that big? To say that in order to love him and to serve him and to worship him requires an act of mercy on his part upon the human soul. That we are absolutely and entirely dependent upon. I mean, if only if Jesus had said something that was within the power of Nicodemus to control. Not like the wind. <laughs> My goodness. Anything but the wind. There's, there's, there's no better metaphor quickly to lay hold of, of things that are outside of the human capacity to control than the wind. And that's exactly how Acts chapter 2 describes Pentecost. That a wind came into the house where the disciples were meeting and shook the place. That's what the word wind is meant to designate, something that is entirely outside of your control. Ever try to control the wind? Just think about that for a moment. You're out sailing and say, wind, please. <laughs> or you're trying to roof a house with four by eight plywood and you say, stop it, please. <laughs> really, please. You can't control it. That's what Jesus says it's like to be born again. It's like, it's like the wind. And I believe Acts 2, with the reference to the wind, is, is vocabulary that helps the people who experienced it remember an incident in the life of Israel when they were standing on the shore of the Red Sea. And a, a Pharaoh's, all of Pharaoh's mighty army was bearing down upon them with all of their chariots and all of their power. And they're saying, Moses, what are we going to do? Why did you bring us out here? And God tells Moses, tell the people to be quiet. I'll use polite vocabulary. To be quiet and start walking. One of the great stories of the Old Testament. And what happens? A mighty rushing wind falls upon the people and it allows them to go through a place where they could never go by themselves on dry ground. Something completely outside of their, of their categories of thinking of what was going to happen in the midst of their enemy. But Jesus didn't talk about the temple. He didn't talk about the priesthood. He didn't talk about the law. Or he didn't say, you know what, there's, there's, just wait, there's going to be a book written about me, and just do what I do. 
Those are all things that, that exercise our trust and our love for God, and rightly so. It's what the, the fruit of the new birth is, to exercise trust and love for God. But, but here's the problem. In order to exercise our trust in God and our love for God, we have to have the capacity created in us to trust God and to love God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Christian life is, is merely some human enterprise where, Lord, I, I need a little help here. I need a little encouragement. I need a little power. Or you partner with God to, to, to do what it's required, to stand before God and say, I'm pleasing to you. Or do you humble yourself before God and saying, God, I need created in with, within me something that is beyond the most fundamental and rudimentary elements of what it looks like to worship you. You have to give that to me. It's like saying to your dog, go ahead and fly, doggy. It's beautiful up there. How many of you saw eagles this morning? You didn't see any dogs up there. When God wants something to fly, he gives it wings, right? How many of you tried to stay under the water for any period of time? You don't have gills. You can't do it. You see, sin isn't merely a behavioral problem. Sin isn't merely an ethical or a, or a, or a, or a moral problem. Sin is a, a spiritual deadness, a spiritual death. And there's nothing more fundamental to spiritual death than suspicion of God's goodness and a misplacement of our affections on created things instead of the creator. Right from the very beginning, at the very beginning, in the words of the serpent to Eve, the seduction was along these lines, uh, appealing to a human instinct that for a reason I don't understand, but apparently the devil knew how to spoke to Eve, whispering, don't trust him. Don't trust him. The new birth. This is my main point this morning. This is all that I would want you to take home today if you don't get anything else. Relax, it's really, really simple. You'll be able to understand it. That Pentecost celebrates the reality of God's Spirit. The reality of God's Spirit intervening supernaturally in the human condition to resurrect dead hearts. Resurrect dead hearts to new life. That, that is what it looks like to be born again. That's what it is to be born again. That's the language of the Gospels. That's the language of the vocabulary that Jesus used. Everything that Jesus taught, that Jesus wants us to know and to remember and understand and believe and possess and lay hold of in the life and the body of the church, the epistles also picked up and explained and taught. So when Paul says, you have been raised with Christ in Colossians 3.1, set your hearts on things above. It's a description of the very same thing, the very same thing that Jesus used the vocabulary of being born again. When Paul says that you are dead in your trespasses, but God, by his mercy and kindness and love, has raised you up. It's the same thing that Jesus is talking about in the vocabulary of you must be born again. Romans chapter 8, where the apostle says, if by the Spirit of God, who, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave dwells in you. He will give life to your mortal bodies. That's what it looks like to be born again. And it is, as I said, as important as Christmas or as Easter because it is a necessity. 
I don't know why it is that we, actually I do think I know why, why we spend a lot of time in our traditions and our rituals and our annual calendars talking about Christmas and Easter and we really don't talk about Pentecost very much. Although someone told me that last year on the calendar, I, I preached on Pentecost last year as well. And you know what? I'm going to ask to do the same thing again next year. But I have a theory. That Christmas and Easter is all about believing in particular things, believing in particular doctrines and aligning ourselves with, with things that we ascribe to be true in history. And Pentecost is different in its nature. Pentecost is taking Christmas and Easter and making them experiential in the life and the heart of the believer. Christmas and Easter would, be, would still be historically true, but they would bring no one into the kingdom of God if it weren't for Pentecost. But that's different for us. It's not merely saying, oh, I believe in the virgin birth. It's not merely saying, I believe in the resurrection, and I believe that those are necessary things. But it's, 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 it's unique in the sense that I am at Pentecost saying, I'm experiencing the power of that Christ that came to earth and the resurrection power in my life that gives me a new heart. Many people have designed a boat and built a boat but never floated in a boat. Many people have germinated tomato seeds and grown tomatoes but never tasted a tomato yet. So also many people believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection but they won't see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And so two very, very simple points this morning. One is that the evidence of the new birth is this. It is an absolute trust in the goodness of God. Secondly, it is a real and experiential affection for God. It is the opposite of idol worship. Idol worship is misplaced trust and misplaced affections. So first of all, the new birth is this. It is a new disposition of the heart to trust God. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to be sealed by the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to be born again, to worship God by staking our lives on his trustworthiness. And if you examine the scriptures, you'll see that in all the stories of the Bible, you'll see this is what God is most honored by. This is what God is most glorified by, is when his creatures hear his word and his word creates trust in him. Instinctively, we know that about one another. If you were to go to a service where somebody was no longer living and you were eulogizing the person that was gone, you instinctively know for the family that is sitting there mourning a lost one, you instinctively know that the, that the most direct path to honoring that person and comforting the family would be to say something like, I trusted that person. And so it is in our worship with God. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. It is overcoming our suspicion of God's goodness. That's a simple thing to say, but I don't know about you, but I believe that's a real problem in the church. Overcoming the suspicion of God's goodness. In all of the seasons of life and all of the, the ways in which God calls us to live, faithful to him, giving thanks in all things, not allowing our circumstances to judge his character. Jesus says that what is of the flesh can only give birth to flesh. And what is of the flesh is a suspicion of God's trustworthiness, a suspicion of his goodness. 
It's what our heart of flesh always defaults to and keeps us from entering God's kingdom. Have you ever prayed something like this? I know I used to pray things like this. Oh, Lord, if you would just show me something more, if you would just change this circumstance, I would, I would trust you, Lord, if, this, if only this would happen. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen an entire army of the largest and most powerful nation on earth thrown into a sea and drowned at the bottom of, of, a, of a sea that you just walked through on dry ground? Have you ever seen anything like that? You know, I, I learned a long time ago in reading through the stories of the Bible, something true about the human heart outside of regeneration, outside of being born again, that it doesn't matter how much of the miraculous they see. It doesn't matter how much of the glory that God shows them in their circumstances. They forget. It's the human condition outside of the work of the Spirit of being born again. They forget Psalm 106 is a litany of this, of this very idea. It's a long psalm. And at the beginning of the psalm, it praises the Lord for his goodness and in faithfulness. And then it says, but we have sinned. And it goes through, like I say, a whole litany and of all of the experiences and all of the ways that God has shown his people his goodness and kept his promises and done so much for them of bringing out of bondage and slavery. And over and over it says, but we forgot. And that same group of people with their tambourines dancing and singing praise to God on the shores of the Red Sea a few weeks later are in the wilderness mistrusting the character of God saying, we want to go back to Egypt because we miss the leaks. Right? The book of Deuteronomy is an amazing book of the Old Testament where Moses stands with the people and Moses is handing the, the staff off to Joshua. Joshua and Caleb, there's a, a story of mistrust in and of itself. Only Joshua and Caleb of the 12 spies are still living because of mistrust. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses goes through with the people and telling them all of the things that God had done for them and all of the ways that they had been stiff-necked and rebelled and all the ways that God had been merciful to them. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. It's a retelling of the law a second time. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, verse 23, God says this to Moses, tell the people that they're about to enter into the land and Joshua will lead them, but tell them this. He says, when you get into the land, I know what you're going to do because you have hearts of flesh. I know that you're going to worship idols because God says that is your inclination. Ezekiel 23, the prophet complains that when you came up out of Egypt, you came with idols in your heart. So it's no wonder that Jesus would say something like this to Nicodemus. You are a leader in Israel, and you don't understand this? Instead of saying, praise the Lord, yes, I understand from reading the story of my own people that there is no way for us ever to truly enter into the kingdom of God eternally and finally unless God do something with our hearts. Because that's what the history of his own people told him. And that's what the prophetic utterance of his prophets also told him. As James read from Ezekiel chapter 36 today, I will give you a new heart. I will. A monergistic work. I will. Sorry for the word monergistic. It just means one person working instead of synergistic. Two people working together. But we live in an age of deep, deep skepticism where I believe that the, the default of the human heart to mistrust is greatly exacerbated by the culture in which we live. The so-called postmodern world is one of deep, deep cynicism. 
profound mistrust. If you are in a position of leadership in our world today, you know what it means to be held in suspicion because of your leadership. And it breaks my heart. I long for people. I long particularly for younger people and God's people to overcome all of the things in our culture that have, have taught them to live in cynicism and mistrust and come to a place and by, by the new birth, by the miraculous work of the Spirit of God to say, I trust God with my life. And unfortunately, religious institutions often make, make that even harder to do. And even professing Christians hold God with a suspicion that often surfaces when a trust of God is required and calls for it. It's the, it's the bump in the rug, isn't it? You know, when we make religion just merely a human enterprise and everything is smooth and it, and, and it, and it looks good and we look good and then there's these bumps in the rugs. Do, do the people who are involved in this actually trust God's word with their lives? Or is there always that whispering ear? Don't trust them. Don't trust them. There is no wisdom of God that can't be trusted. There is no path that God calls us to walk in that is somehow lacking in God's goodness. And all that he says to his people, but it requires an abandonment of trust to him. Are you born again? Do you trust God? Salvation isn't just new information to dead hearts. Salvation is a new birth with a new capacity to trust God. It's a spirit brought to life that resurrects a dead heart. And I believe the Psalms are so instructive. They're saying, what does, how does a dead heart, or has a, a, a dead heart made new, how does it talk to God? I read the Psalms over and over and over to give me the vocabulary of what I believe a new heart looks like. Psalm 31, 14. I trust in you, O Lord, my times are in your hand. Job says this, though he slayed me, yet will I trust him, right? Proverbs 3, familiar words. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding, and he will guide you in all of your paths. And Jesus, Jesus, trust of the Father to honor and glorify the power of the Spirit, trusting right to the grave, right to the place where Jesus himself had, had no power himself over anything but an entire abandonment of himself to not my will but yours be done. Now, does it make sense to you that if the Spirit of God lives in us to give us a new birth. Does it make sense to you, it does to me, that that new birth is going to create in us a resemblance of the relationship in the Trinity between the Father and the Son? Do you follow me? That same Spirit of God that was on Jesus, that enabled him to trust the will of his Father to go to the grave, to love his Father above all else, to live a life of perfection on this earth, that we also would learn as Jesus lived out by the same Spirit to, to trust God and to love God. Secondly, to be born again is to possess a love for God, a love for God that surpasses our love for created things. That's a really, really simple concept, but it surpasses and transcends what is possible in the flesh. Loving God is not merely a human enterprise. 
It's not a matter of exhorting people more or manipulating people more or shaming people more. It's the new birth where we love God above all else because we are grasping by the Spirit, the grace of God that he has shown to us in saving us from our sins, giving us a new identity, and giving us eternal hope in Christ. You see, in our first birth, we're universally of a certain disposition towards God. Indifference, sometimes even antagonistic. That's what idol worship is all about. It's a misplaced affection. And that is why Jesus speaks of the new birth along with the work of water. You must be born again. And it is a work of water and the Spirit, Jesus says, because you must be cleansed of all the defilement of your love for created things more than the Creator. You have to be washed. You have to be made clean. 1 Peter 1.8 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Are you born again? Hey, well, yeah, I, you know, back in 1917, 1972, 19, whatever, 2016, whatever. Praise the Lord. He awoke you up and said, there is a Savior who will save you from your sins. But you know that that is just the very first evidence of a new heart? To trust in God by believing in Jesus is just the very first step of an entire life where God calls us deeper and deeper every day into our character, into our thinking, into our words, into our vocabulary, into our relationships. My wife and I were talking the other day about men in general, because I raised an issue of somebody that I said, why is that person angry all the time? And she said, it's a man thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I said to her, you're right, I'm angry sometimes too. She says, yeah, you are. It's a man thing. Women have woman things. And I can't speak to woman things, but I can speak to the man thing. It's because we're scared. There's fear in our hearts of so many things. The psalmist says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Tremendous words of new birth. Ephesians 3.17, Paul prays this for the church. He says that you would be rooted and grounded in love. You ever, this struck me recently in teaching through the book of Ephesians here at the church. It, I've always mined the book of Ephesians for the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Wonderful, wonderful prayers. But just stop and think about it for a minute. The Apostle Paul preaches and teaches an incredible doctrine about how God loves us before the foundation of the world and calls us to the praise of his glorious grace. And then he stops and he says, I'm going to pray for you. It's like he, he puts his hands on the church. And he says, I'm going I'm to pray that, that all of these things would not just be mere ideas for you, but that, the, that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would permeate into your thinking. And, and Paul understood that even what he was saying in the work of God in the life of a Christian was beyond his human capacity, the human enterprise, to make any change in the human heart. So he says, I'm going to pray for you. It's an amazing admission of the necessity of God's work, right there in the book of Ephesians. But he prays this, that you would be rooted and grounded in love and know the width and breadth and height and depth of it. So, in conclusion, let me say this, that the healing of the new birth occurs through the gospel. The gospel over and over again, which definitively proves God's goodness and beauty to us. Do you believe that? 
You believe it instead of saying, praying, Lord, show me more. Say, Lord, forgive me for forgetting and show me more of Christ. The gospel publishes to us the grandest revelation of God's character that will ever be possible and how that he keeps his promises, how he treats sinners, how he deals with his enemies, how he keeps those who look to him, how he hears the prayers of those who speak to him, how he fills hearts full of despair with eternal hope and life. It's all there in the gospel. But we live an entire life of demonstrating the new birth that says, Lord, today, in this situation, I'll trust you. And I won't defer my affections to something that you have made instead of you yourself. There's nothing that God could do for you circumstantially that could as sufficiently, as sufficiently prove to you his trustworthiness and his love than how he has already treated you in Christ as a sinner. I'm not a fan of the, the, the you know, sometimes in preaching you hear metaphors you just don't like, right? <laughs> I probably used one today or you go, you know what, that doesn't work for me. What doesn't work for me is a metaphor of faith that someone hanging on a cliff and God says, yeah, I just let go. What? I don't think so. I don't find that in the Bible. The exhortation, the prayer of the Apostle Paul is that you would have a, wis a spirit of wisdom and revelation. If you're in a precarious place, what you need to understand more is the love of Christ and the abiding, shepherding hand of God upon you through Christ. I'm convinced that the evangelical church has an overabundance of exhortation to love God and an underabundance of declaration of the love of God for us as sinners. You say, well, that's, you know, that, that's dangerous. What are people going to do with that message? They might just get high on themselves and, 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 and forget, about, forget about actually loving God and, and serving God. And say, well, no. That's exactly how you deal with the temptation of a religion that turns into nothing more than a human enterprise. Along with Paul, you say, him we proclaim. I came to you knowing nothing except Christ. And religion isn't about keeping people low, keeping people down. Not in God's eyes. He says, through Christ, he has raised us up into the heavenlies. Where we know and experience and grasp the love of God for us. So instead of praying, Lord, show me more, pray, Lord, help me not to forget the great love of God for me in Jesus Christ. Would you please stand for me? I'm going to read from Psalm 63 as we close. Psalm 63 says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. Praise the Lord.